what do you think? How many times a week do you think most people are having sex? Because I've always wondered this. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the average couple, and this is child-free, I think the stats say 1.2 times a week. Child-free. Child-free. Wow. So at a toddler in, I would say... 0.2. You know, like a couple of times a month. Yeah. Let's aim for that. I think that's really good. And, you know, again, back to the number of times I always try and tell people it's not necessarily quantity, it's more quality. If you have sex once a month and it's awesome and it fulfills Mm. all your needs, physical, emotional, um, and you feel really connected with your partner, that's enough. Hello and welcome to Parenthood, conversations about life after kids. I'm your host, Leonia Kidanor, and every fortnight I will bring you discussions about the real and raw realities of parenting, life behind the Instagram filter. Join us as we laugh, cry and bond over the organised chaos that is parenthood. Hi, Aaliyah. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So for everyone listening, I have Aaliyah Hashim on with us and she is a sexologist. So Aaliyah works at Melbourne IVF as a fertility counsellor and also a sexologist in private practice. She has a degree in sexual medicine and predominantly sees women with sexual who are dealing with sexual pain, postpartum, sexual trauma, low libido, etc. So I feel like there is so much we can delve into today, Aaliyah, with all of your wealth of expertise in this area <laughs> there's so much to unpack I mean it's such, oh, a, it's such a massive topic really isn't it go in so many different directions with it as well absolutely and also you're a new mother of, mm-hmm. uh, of a six-month-old so you can really resonate um, I'm sure with our audience and myself I've got two under three well one's three and a half and one's 18 months so yeah, the little toddlers it's oh, um gosh. it's a whirlwind isn't it yes. <laughs> I never understood prior to having a baby and now I'm like every mother I'm like you have done so well well done the fact that you've gone back for another one I'm like you're you're amazing (laughs) it's like be careful what you wish for because then you have two of them and you're like oh god okay yeah you bit off more than you can chew yeah (laughs) so as I mentioned our audience are predominantly um parents with young children so generally let's call it under the age of five so Mm -hmm. what I wanted to really speak to you about was around your expertise around low libido because I think mm-hmm. this is very common um, uh, with with new parents in particular um, particularly because what you know what it's like you're so maxed up, out by touch you're constantly holding your children your children mm-hmm. are climbing on you if they're toddler age it's just like there's such a great energy output that mm-hmm. you know often we feel like we don't have the energy to you know put out further and and provide you know massive affection towards our partners mm-hmm. I mean do you hear this a lot in the work that you're doing yeah, absolutely. And I'm experiencing it myself at the moment as well. So I think that really informs the work that I'm doing almost just because I can I can understand it firsthandly how much parenting is overstimulating. Like, you know, you've got you're playing with them, you're singing, you've got loud noises, you've got toys. It's just full yes. on all the time. And then yes. you're giving everything to this tiny little human. And it's very easy to forget that our partner's also need 
a bit of love and care as well. And it's really hard to dig deep and, and to give that, especially at the end of the day when they get home, for example, it's, it's like, just don't touch me, please. I can't do another thing. (laughs) I'm done. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And I actually thought it'd be fun just to kick it off with two predictions from your experience. So, um, because the things that I've always wondered, so I know that we're sort of, I don't think there's necessarily statistics out there that would be absolutely accurate with these two questions, but I'm just curious your gauge on this. What's your guess on how soon most people are starting to have sex again after having a child? I mean, the Mm -hmm. obstetrician generally says six, after six weeks after birth, it's generally safe. But with the, with the, um, the work that you do, what do you think? I think anywhere between three months to a year. Wow. Really? I mean, obviously, you know, it's very individualized and it's yeah. it's such personal experience and, and how, you know, the support that you're getting, there are so many variables attached to that, um, mm. attached to that question. But, yeah. you know, a lot of women or a lot of couples aren't necessarily ready to have sex, you know, when the obstetrician or the physiotherapist gives clearance at six weeks because, mm. You know, that's when you're really in the thick of it, right? Mm. And you've had six weeks of sleep deprivation and feeding and blah, blah, blah. So I would say, yeah, it can take a little while sort of for your body to feel ready for it. And, you know, that's not necessarily from a physical perspective but also an emotional perspective as well. Absolutely. And I'm thinking, you know, if you've had a birth where you've had interventions and Mm. things like that, I mean, that's, I guess, a sort of physical trauma. I mean, I had an episiotomy and I was like, dude, I had no idea I had to like sit on ice for like weeks on end after it. This is no joke. Yeah, exactly. You know, and there's that physical aspect of birth, you know, the episiotomy, the stitches, the pain, but there's also that emotional trauma that can sometimes come from birth. Um, you know, if you didn't feel heard during birth, if you had um, interventions against your will or not that you didn't necessarily plan for, that can be really traumatic as well. And I think, you know, taking time to process that um, and to speak to someone about that, whether that be your health practitioner or another practitioner as well, like a psychologist or a sexologist, that can be really helpful too in sort of processing that to sort of come, um, not necessarily full circle, but to feel ready again to connect with your body and to connect with your partner in that way. Yeah, absolutely. What about if we're thinking now more the toddler age, so, you know, Mm -hmm. um, under the age of five, what do you think, how many times a week do you think most people are having sex? Because I've always wondered this. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the average couple, and this is child-free, I think the stats say 1.2 times a week child free child free wow so okay at a toddler in yeah. i would say 0.2 yeah, yeah. <laughs> <One and a half>. <laughs> <laughs> you know like a couple times a month yeah let's aim yeah. for that i think that's really yeah. good and you know again back to the number of times i always try and tell people it's not necessarily quantity it's more quality yeah. if you have sex once a month and it's awesome and it fulfills Mm. all your needs physical emotional um and you feel really connected with your partner Mm. that's enough you know let's just i mean obviously there's a place for the quickie yeah and that's great Mm. but if it doesn't really feed your soul then once a month you know aim for it and and work towards that yeah absolutely that's achievable 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really fair point as well around um, that physical, emotional connection because fundamentally that's what it is. And I know a lot of us tend to feel the pressure when, you know, you've just Mm -hmm. had a baby or whatever. It's like, okay, well, how soon do I need to jump in the sack? And then also, you know, how long is my partner going to feel neglected for? And it is a real pressure that I think a lot of us are facing. I spoke to a relationship psychologist actually um, in one of our episodes and Mm -hmm. um, I said to her, how are people sort of dealing with that from a couple perspective? And she said, look, technically there are two options. You either go for it and even if you're not 100% ready, you know, that's one person and the partner may not be a hundred percent ready, but maybe when you do go for it, when you're in it, you kind of get your mojo back, which I Mm -hmm. feel like I put my hands up to that category. The other option is essentially just wait um, and sort of, you know, resist it until you do sort of feel absolutely ready. And and that may take a a lot more time. Mm -hmm. And obviously the risk there is that, you know, you'd want to be communicating with your partner as much as possible so that they don't feel neglected for whatever period of time that looks like. I was curious from your expertise with those two options, tell me your thoughts. Yeah, I think a sexological point of view is that you can kind of go in between the two. It it sounds like it's a very all or nothing approach. And what I deal with a lot of women, a lot of couples is I try and say, let's take the pressure off penetrative sex because that is one type of sex under the sexual umbrella, you know, if you don't feel ready for, ready for penetrative sex, what else can we do, right? Mm. How else can you feel connected to your partner? There is so much that you can do and, and and enjoy each other and feel connected with each other without having that penetrative aspect of sex. You know, there's mm. adipose, so, you know, stimulation of the clitoris, you know, oral sex, hand jobs, whatever it may be could be a massage it could be just simply having a date night holding hands on the couch taking away your phone different things like that enable you to help feel connected so that you can gradually incorporate some elements of sexuality into that you start feeling yourself again you start feeling yourself as a couple again and getting back your identity that does feel like it's somewhat a little bit lost Mm. once you have a child right you're no longer just your partner or a girlfriend or a wife, you become a mum. And that can do massive stuff to our identity, right? I mean, I know that I'm struggling with that at the moment as well. You know, who am I if I'm not a partner or if I'm not a sexologist? I'm a mum at home at the moment. So that also, I think, affects how we are as lovers and how we are as partners too. So, Mm. you know, if we take away penetrative sex, and just say, let's take it off the table completely. How else can we connect with our partner? And I think doing that with couples and chatting to couples about that sort of, you know, it's like we almost forget that that exists. Mm. And light bulb moments occur in them and they're like, oh, like, yeah, I forgot. Like we could just give each other a massage. Yeah. And that's enough, you know? Yeah. It's almost like, as you said, you, you always need to relearn that because particularly mm. with the shock of a baby and, and your new routine, well, your routine essentially going out the window, yeah. you're just like in survival mode. So, you know, and often as the, the female, if it's a heterosexual relationship, mm. the female's like, dude, uh, like maxed out, can't deal with you. But the, as I said, at some point the guilt kicks in and you're like, Ugh. even I found just laying on the couch, we usually... You, 
would lay on the couch like, you know, Jules, my hubby, like, you know, hugging me or hand on the leg or just some level of affection there. That was mm. even gone at one point, you know, once you've had baby because you're like, Ugh, yeah. don't even like put your hand on my knee, man. Like, <laughs> I can't handle that. So it's, it, it's almost like it has to become an active, you know, thing that you're, you're firstly aware of. And secondly, mm-hmm. I mean, do you find that with couples? You're like, okay, let's relearn this. Let's, let's go back to what, what we like as far as affection goes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You do, you have to put in effort. It doesn't just happen naturally. Um, no. And also there can be that cycle of avoidance. I know, I know that if we are talking about a heterosexual couple, the women obviously have to put in an active effort to reach out to their partner and to touch their partner yes. and to do all of these things. But mm. partners can also like into this cycle of avoidance as well. Like they don't want to burden their partner. They know that their partner's really touched out, exhausted, having to deal with the baby all day. And so the partners may just not initiate that contact either. So it is an active approach from both parties. Um, And it's, you know, it's your responsibility to do that. No one's going to do it for you. So, you know, it's just about finding ways to make it work for you as well. Because if you know that you've only got 10 minutes at the end of the day to connect, how can we do that, right? Mm-hmm. If you're lucky enough to have a babysitter or have family or have help and you're able to go out for dinner or you're able to take yourself away for a few hours, you know, what can you do in that time? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like prioritising those little pockets of time um, to connect because it's not yeah. going to be what you had before, a whole no. weekend, Sunday mornings, yeah. <laughs> all of that. <laughs> the luxury. I know. Sleeping. <laughs> So uh, you you also specialise in sort of the low libido and really mm. supporting people who do have low libido. Can you talk to me about, because I think we're talking about low libido here sort of in that you've had a baby and yeah. you're just not feeling it, but what is low libido? Talk to me about it. So low libido, I, I think libido almost, it, it can speak to that drive or that desire for sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically after after birth during pregnancy sometimes but after birth particularly we tend to see that decline in low libido um and there are a number of reasons for that so i think i spoke to you the other day about sort of the biological reason as to why that happens um you know after birth a lot of women don't know that you typically have the same symptoms as menopause Right. And that's because of that drop in estrogen. If you're um, nursing, you have a rise in prolactin as well. So those two hormones um, typically impact on sexual desire or libido. Um, you know, you can have vaginal atrophy, so deterioration of tissue inside the vagina, which makes you dry. Um, and then also that suppression in libido that just naturally happens from those hormones. And then there's also that evolutionary sort of idea of, well, let's try and inhibit your libido because you're already looking after a child. We don't want to get you pregnant again because then you're going to neglect your current child and look after another one. Um, You know, men don't see that decline in libido typically, but women do. And, And the reason for that is that we're so close to our food. Like we are the, our child's food source and we need to keep them alive. 
That's so interesting that so you're in a way, like your body is like, no, we've got one child here. That's enough for now. Your responsibility wow. is to care for your live child. Don't even wow. think about having another child. <laughs> that is so interesting. Mm. Do you notice, um, you know, we're talking about heterosexual couples here, but I'm not sure if you also work with, um, you know, same-sex couples. Mm. Do you notice mm-hmm. any sort of differences in their interaction um, as far as, you know, what we're talking about? I mean, do they tend to, I mean, is it the same essentially, much of a muchness? What's your experience? Um, I think, you know, if we're talking about same-sex female couple, um, the the woman who has had the baby um, will typically see that decline in libido. Um, But what they may be better at doing is prioritising those pockets of time, not having that focus on penetrative sex. So they may be willing to engage in, you know, massage out of course you know it's so it is it is much of a muchness but we do we do see couples have that decline in sort of sexual connection and and sexual incidents after childbirth right mm. but it, it does differ between same-sex couples which yeah. is interesting it is interesting, isn't it? Let's take a leaf out of their book. <laughs> yeah, like they're more yeah. sort of aware of other aspects of affection, like yeah. that we tend to lose sight of sometimes, I feel. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. I- I'm curious as well. So how if you let's say someone's listening to this and going, you know what, I'm very mindful that I don't, I'm, I've got a low libido at the moment. Mm. Um, I'm kind of feeling bad because, you know, it may have been three months since we had, you know, just pulling out a number out of thin air since yeah. we've um, been affectionate even, let's call it that. Um, how can they best communicate with their partner about this rather than just avoid it altogether? And mm-hmm. then often what I've heard as well from, you know, anecdotal stories is that three months can turn into four months, can turn into a year, can turn mm. into, and then all of a sudden you've completely lost that connection. So, you know, what should we be doing around the communication piece? Yeah. Firstly, I want to say um, to all of those people that feel like you're not alone, <laughs> it's really common. Um And there are reasons for that, you know. And like I said, there's that hormonal aspect of your nursing. There's that evolutionary aspect as well. But um, I think communicating that to your partner to start with is really important so they get an understanding about what's going on for you from a physical perspective. If you've got individual um, reasons for why you don't want to engage in in sex, whether that be penetrative or non-penetrative, communicate that as well. Is it trauma associated with your birth? Is it that you're experiencing pain? Is it that you um, are really exhausted and you don't have the ability to give your partner any touch? For example, I I think identifying perhaps what it is for you that's causing that, or even just becoming aware of the different reasons why it could be happening for you and communicating that as a good starting point because it's not saying I don't have time for you. It's mm-hmm. this is what's going on for me and this could be impacting why I don't have sexual desire or why I don't have libido. Sometimes what can be really helpful is seeing a sexologist as well so that they can explain it to your partner too because then that takes the pressure off you and having to have that conversation um, mm-hmm. as well. And then, you know, me as a sexologist, I can explain that to your partner. Well, these are all the reasons, you know, why there could be um, a dip in sexual desire or why you could, why your partner could be experiencing low libido. Um, mm. And when 
the partner typically hears it from someone else. It's like a light bulb goes off in their head. They're like, oh, mm. that completely makes sense. Yeah. And then you can work towards repairing that aspect. Mm. So tell me, how is talking to a sexologist different to talking to a relationship therapist? It might This might sound really dumb, but I'm just mm. curious. Um, yeah, like why would I see a sexologist over a relationship therapist? Because I feel like my relationship is breaking down because I'm not having sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... If there are a whole host of reasons, you know, that relationship therapists deal with in terms of communication breakdown, um, but that can be impacting sex. I guess what we can talk to a little bit more is the biological aspect of sex, the psychological aspect of sex, the emotional aspects of sex, and, you know, it could even be cultural aspect of sex as well. Um, that could be influencing libido, desire, even connection with your partner. Um, so we're trained in that. And, you know, we talk about it day in, day out. So we talk about ways to repair that sexual deterioration, not deterioration, but that sexual breakdown, you know. Mm. And you know, we've got aspect, we've got, um, we've got access to toys. We've got access to other information. You know, we can talk to physios as well. The, you know, if we believe that you're experiencing sexual pain, we can refer you on to the right people. Um, we deal with a lot of um, other professionals in the field, which can also help um, if we think that you might need it. You know, we've got yeah. that referral system as well. Whereas I find relationship therapists, they absolutely have a place. But if we're talking about sexual concerns specifically, they may not have the training or the education to be able to talk to those things specifically. Yeah, that makes sense. Talk to me about, you said that you have access to toys. Talk to me about, so is that like, do you give people like homework or they have to, you know, get yeah. a toy? Like talk to me about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think we need to normalise toys a little bit more because, you know, whether you have a child or not, it can just add that little bit extra you know Mm. it can be really exciting when you get a toy for the first time that you can use by yourself or with a partner sometimes using it by yourself first getting yourself into a sexual space first then allows you to then go to your partner and be like that with them too Mm. and it could be that whole aspect of relearning you know relearning your body after you've had a baby what might turn you on previously or what might have felt good previously might feel really different now that you've had your baby and your body's changed a bit. So, um, I mean, I know if you previously enjoyed having your breast stimulated, now if you're nursing, you might not want your partner near your breast. Yes, so that, that's a really good example. You know, yeah. what? how can toys inform your sex life rather than take away? Mm, and I so we, we can explain that to you or to your partner and and we can recommend different toys as well i know um i recommend this one particular toy to women who experience sexual pain um because it's really soft you know Mm. and it it provides good stimulation that isn't overwhelming and we have really good success with that you know to be able to have penetrative sex again so different things like that you know even if it's just a a non-penetrative toy or a toy for your partner whatever it may be it's essentially just to help spice things up again for you to feel like you're sort of got your sexy back. Is that essentially what it, yeah, yeah. Cool for that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What about role play? I know that, again, I feel like that's probably something where you have the luxury of time, you know, to do your role plays and stuff. But what's been your experience that it might be less relevant to when you've got ch- young children and you don't have much time? Yeah. But do you use that as a tool? Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
if we break down the idea of role play even more, I think it, it basically comes down to flirting, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's essentially all it is, is being able to have a break from your own identities for a little bit and just engage with a little bit of banter and a little bit of flirting mm-hmm. that you may have previously done with your partner back in the day when, yeah. when things were hot and spicy in the beginning, or, yeah. you know, I think sparking up that fun, that idea of fun and that idea of, you know, flirting, I think that's really important. And yes, I go back to that all the time because I think we forget that as well. 100% parenting, um, particularly in the earlier stages and let's call it the first few years even, mm-hmm. it feels a little bit heavy. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful, absolutely beautiful aspects to it as well and watching your children grow and all of those mm-hmm. great things. But as you mentioned, the identity crisis that a lot of us experience and, you know, the to-do list and the never-ending mental load and it all just feels very heavy and all of a sudden you have all these things to do that you never had to worry about before. <laughs> so one thing I find is just like just trying to get into the headspace where you even feel like yourself for five minutes. And sometimes for me, it's, I do love to, um, I love a bit of a foodie. So I sit down at a restaurant and it's only then that I can kind of take a deep breath and go, okay, I'm back, you know, because <laughs> yeah. a lot of the time I don't feel like myself. I feel like the, you know, the task mask are just t- ticking things off. Yeah. I mean, do you hear, do you hear that from a lot of clients too? Like how the hell am I meant to find the time to sit there and use my toy that you're giving me because I've got too many things to do? Like, you know, what, what do you say to mm-hmm. that? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I'm in that space at the moment myself where, yeah. and I think it is, well, let's take small steps. So you, you, for example, sit down at a restaurant, you feel like yourself again. How can you feel like yourself again? And what can you do? I know for me, it's doing things like this, you know, speaking on a podcast because it's what I used to do before baby. And it's inherently who I am. It's part of my identity. I love to put on makeup you know, even if it's five minutes, just to feel like myself again and not be in a mum bun, mum bun all the time. Um, it could be just sitting down with a glass of wine and your partner, you know, and just having a conversation that's not, you know, baby talk or that's not centred around your child. Mm. Take those small steps, even if it's just like, yeah, putting on makeup, having a glass of wine, being like, partner, can you please take my child for 30 minutes to the park or for a walk so that I can feel like myself and just have some time where I am by myself Mm. is really important. Absolutely. And the thing that comes to mind there as well is if you are sleep deprived, you're already on such low fuel that, Mm. I mean, generally, you know, like you know, the, any little bit of time that I had, for example, in that first year that someone would take the ch- my child, often I'm like, oh, maybe I can cat nap, you know, <laughs> like because yeah. you don't know when you're going to sleep again. And so it's, yeah, it's so and you just kind of fill your tank up with mm-hmm. a, even a cat nap or, you know, reading a book for five minutes or just whatever, just getting those little nuggets of time to yourself because they're few and far between. Yeah, I think self-care is, is one of those buzzwords, but it's really important because self-care looks different to so many different people but enables you to fill your cup and be a better partner and be a better parent you can't pour from an empty cup right so whatever it may be for you take the time five ten minutes half an hour an hour if you're lucky that's like a huge luxury Mm -hmm. um to to just you know sit in that space of you and Mm -hmm. and stuff that makes you feel good so that you can sort of get that back 
Yeah, absolutely. What also comes to mind there is um, I want to stress sort of not stress as in let's get all, you know, narky about it, but also Mm -hmm. just sort of um, encourage the importance of this. Like why the hell is it even important for us to like worry about what our partner's doing? Like I'm so busy. I'm over here doing my thing. They're just going to have to suck it up. But I remember um, I went to a Tony Robbins five-day course called Date with Destiny and one whole day was on relationships. Mm -hmm. And the one thing he said, Tony said, and I'll never forget this. He said, um, you want your relationship with your partner to be the strongest and the most important relationship in your life above and beyond the relationship that you have with your children. Mm -hmm. And at the time I didn't have children at the time and I was like, oh yeah, kind of makes sense. And now I think about that and I'm like, wow, that's a big thing. Like that's an active thing that you've really got to work at because it's easy to look after your kids. It's easy to take all your time up with your children and go to your partner. Yeah. You know, you're there, but I'm busy too and get resentful and all these things. But really it's an active thing, particularly in the first years of pregnancy to go, uh, of sorry, parenthood to go, okay, this is a really important relationship. And the reason why Tony said that is you need to be good as a team if you're fortunate enough to be in a couple as a team, because then you'll create the best environment for your children and everything just sort of flows through. I'm curious your opinion on why is this so important? Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you said, you and your partner are a team, right? And you've embarked on this parenting journey together. Um, if you are in a, in a relationship, absolutely. But also, as I say to, to patients as well, you know, one day your children are going to leave. And then you've got your partner. And if you don't actively work on your relationship throughout you know, throughout your children's life, then what's your relationship after they leave? It's like full empty nest syndrome. Um, And that's what we see. And so we we really try and stress, you know, working on your relationship and prioritising your relationship at all stages. Um, You know, if we divert my work at Melbourne IVF, I deal with a lot of um, patients experiencing infertility or subfertility. And it's very easy to let your relationship go during that period. But, you know, that is your strongest foundation, right? Mm. We see so many ups and downs, things like fertility, things like um, grief, you know, stress, um, family distress. And so how can we really foster that relationship so that you've got You've got someone that's there for you that can support you because it's not your children's job to support you. You know, no. it's your job to be there for them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And even just delving a little bit more into your work at, um, with Melbourne IVF. Um, so curious around, so let's call it, cause I mean, a lot of the people that listen to the podcast potentially, you know, usually are parents, but, you know, let's say that there's someone listening who has a child and he's struggling to have a yeah. second. I mean, what are some, tips, you know, I know it's sort of putting you on the spot here, but some things that they could be considering in, in sitting in this time. Yeah, I think subfertility or what they call a secondary infertility, um, so the ability to have a second child um, is really common. And a lot of the time it gets um, dismissed because if you've already got a child, they're like, oh, well, you should be so grateful that you've got one child. That doesn't undermine your need for a second child to give your child a sibling. Um, You know, I think that's really important to validate what they're going through. I think um, going to a practitioner, whether that be a fertility specialist, um, a gynecologist, an obstetrician, someone um, in that space 
is really important so that you've got that relationship with that person so that they can do the adequate testing to figure out what's going on for you so they can recommend specific things for you from a fertility perspective. I think that's really important. Um, A lot of people, you know, don't necessarily have those conversations with practitioners early enough and then they feel like they might leave it a little bit too late, you know, whether that be number of months, number of years. And then I think that can also take its toll on your relationship as well because if you're actively trying in that time and you don't have that support from another practitioner it can be really i find that for the female partner it could be a massive burden for them because they know when they're fertile their partner doesn't know when they're fertile and they have to initiate sex in that time and it can it can be a huge Mm -hmm. thing to carry that and that, you know, a lot of people lie to their partner and, and say, I'm not fertile, but they just spontaneously try and initiate sex in that time so their partner doesn't necessarily feel like, quote, unquote, a sperm donor. Mm-hmm. It, it's this, it can be a massive convoluted thing. And I think, you know, just having support is so important, support outside of your relationship to be able to mm-hmm. bounce off and to be able to have that information so that, you know, we can care for you and we can help you through that time. Mm, that's so true. And and also, you know, helping those people feel like sex isn't a mm. job, which I've heard from a lot of friends, like it becomes a job. And now it's like, that was the fun part of my life. And now I'm not enjoying mm. that. And I've got a schedule and what the it's hell is happening. And it's a chore. Yeah. Like, again, how do people who are sitting in, in this going, I'm feeling sex is a chore right now. What are things they can be doing to maybe spice things up? A little I guess a lot of the stuff we've spoken about but anything else that you could yeah suggest? yeah absolutely I think um I think spreading the responsibility across both partners is really important so as I mentioned you know female partners often feel they'll typically feel the burden of having to initiate sex during their fertile window I think what I um suggest to couples is having like an ovulation tracker app that you can have on both of your phones so that your partner can be aware of when you're ovulating as well um, yes. to sort of share that responsibility so that they can initiate in that time um, or you both know when you have to do it. And it can be something that you do together rather than the female partner being like, I'm ovulating, time to go. Um, I think that's yes. really important as well. Um, mm. And it can be something like seeing a sexologist so that we can talk about, okay, what are your turn-ons? What are your turn-offs? How can we maximise that in times of when you're going to need to have sex so that it can be really fun for you? It doesn't have to be boring. It can be trying different things. It can be incorporating things like role play or toys or, um, you know, or having those conversations with your partner about what can we do in the times where we're not ovulating to maintain that connection as well so that when it comes to ovulation time when we need to have sex during the fertile window, it doesn't feel like, oh, now we've got to get it up again and, and go for it. You know, we've got that main, yes. we've maintained that connection throughout the month as well. So it's not this massive thing mm. because that can also yeah. lead to performance anxiety, pressure. Um, we don't yes. want that. 
Yes, you want, and look, I'm a Type A sort of personality, and I'm sure a lot yeah. of the a lot of the other Type A's out there, you know, when you don't see results quickly and you work hard at something, mm-hmm. what is going wrong? And the hardest part about all of this is just um, it's so out of your control as far as if you are going to have yeah. a baby or not. You know how quickly you have a baby, and all of those things are so out of your control. I remember when we sort of started the conversation around, oh, maybe we'll sort of start trying, and you know, and ideally, probably it's about a about a year mm-hmm. away so I um I went off the pill I'd been on it for literally like eight yeah. years co- constantly had never gone off it and so I was like oh my body will probably need six months to reset and um funnily enough it didn't and I actually fell pregnant a little bit sooner than we had mm-hmm. expected um you know hashtag blessing but at the same time I was actually a bit jolted yeah. by it because I didn't expect but the reason why we did that is because I just knew that as a type a um if I was like right, I want to get pregnant next June. So we'll start trying at this date. And all of a sudden it would start feeling like a yeah. job. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I guess I was mindful of my own sort of um, character in that. Um, but again, totally appreciate that. I was very fortunate. Um, but I've got a lot of friends who are, you know, fighting the other fight where, you know, they've been trying for a, a very mm-hmm. long time and it's not an easy headspace to be and I, I could only you know imagine so yeah. I think it's fantastic there are people like you out there who are able to sort of provide that support as you said go and seek other additional support in other areas as well if, if you are feeling like you're in that um, state yourself I think just having an army of people around you yeah. um, and even maybe if you don't want to spend the money necessarily and have you know um, you can always I don't know look on YouTube and and Instagram yeah. and other areas to maybe educate yourself and realize that you're not alone I think just engaging with others who are going through what you're going through can be really validating yes. Um, yes. if you're sharing that same experience and to know that you're not alone, you know, fertility or subfertility affects one in five, which is a lot. Mm, is that right? Wow. 20, you know, and some so even say wow. one in four. So that's, you know, 25% of people wow. are experiencing this. And, and it's so quietly kept. Yeah. You know, why aren't we talking about and it? It's, more, one, it's you know? one thing that you can't control. You know, yes, it's yes. so beyond your control. And what I try and encourage people to note is what are the elements that you can control, right? Yeah, you can't control when you're going to get pregnant, but you can control how connected you feel to your partner, how you spend your months, how you know you go and um, access those services, whether it be chatting to your GP about potential options for you, or um, you know learning about your cycle and to know why we have a fertile window and when the best time is to have sex so that you feel educated and empowered. I think that's really important as well, just to sort of figure out what are the elements that you can control and what elements can't you control. So we can pull yes. our energy into that and sort of not have acceptance, but sort of understand, well, you know, this is beyond my body right now. This is beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Doing the best we can mm-hmm. with what we've got. And as you said, feeling us in a state of empowerment. Yeah. Circling all the way back. So let's talk about the low libido. Yeah. So um, as far as if someone is sitting in in that um, headspace as well, as you said, there are lots of people that they could be reaching out to. Was there any any sort of resources or other things that you lean on during that time? I love the book Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. Have you heard of it? 
Okay, I'll, um, I'll send you the link. It's yeah. so Emily Nagoski is a sex educator in the United States, and she actually um, Netflix just have a documentary, and she's featured on it called Principles of Pleasure. And I just started watching it, um, but you know, get interrupted by a screaming baby at nine o'clock at night. But she talks. This book, Come as You Are, talks specifically to female sexuality, and it talks about female sexual desire and. Um, what I love is the way that she talks about desire as being a metaphor for a car. So brakes being your turn offs and accelerators being a turn on. And if we've got our foot on the brake and our foot off the accelerator, we're not going to move forward like a car. We need our foot on the accelerator and our foot off the brake to be able to move forward and experience desire. So that's probably, it's like my favorite book ever that I recommend to patients as well and they love because it's written in a way that normalizes so much of what we all go through as women yes Um, yeah it's really important to know that you know everyone's experience is very individual but also very universal um which is what I like oh I love that I'll add those details in the show notes too Uh, to wrap up, how can people find out more about you and your yes, work? So I have an Instagram called at great.sexpectations. <laughs> I love that name. It's so, so catchy. <laughs> um, I need to, I need to work on it a little bit more, but my aim of that Instagram was to provide a lot of um, educational material for people in very bite-sized digestible ways um, around sex, pleasure, and fertility. So there's definitely some gold in there. Um, I'm on maternity leave at the moment, but I work at the Australian Institute of Sexology and Sexual Medicine. Um, So you can find me on aissm.com.au and um, bid indirectly my work at Melbourne IVF as a fertility counsellor as well. Yeah, I love that. I'll add those details in the episode notes, particularly the Instagram page. Yeah. That sounds like sort of the most direct way yeah. potentially mm-hmm. to get hold of you. But having said that, you are so, you are with your hands full with the six-month-old. But when do you think you will uh, might go back to work? Have you sort of Yeah, I'm thinking in the next three months yeah. or so. Yeah. Okay, so not far not off. Not far off. Yeah. It's a little bit daunting um, to be I, able to put that, yeah. that hat on again after yeah quote unquote mum just mum yeah but it is the work I enjoy it's having those relationships with my patients and being able to help them yeah and now you know having my experience as well being able to incorporate that and to have that higher level of empathy I think is really important Absolutely. It's a lived mm-hmm. experience, this whole parenting gig, isn't it? You can't teach it. You can't explain it. Like you've got to live it. And, <laughs> and then feel it all. <laughs> Aaliyah, thank you so much for your time today and chatting with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review and give us five stars if you're feeling fancy. Want to be part of the Parenthood community? Join our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram at Parenthood Pod. Now I'll let you get back to the organised chaos. Until next time.